and welcome to the Dr. Linda Mintel Show. I'm your host, Dr. Linda Mintel, the relationship doctor, and I'm here along with my co-host, Chris Weigel, and every weekend we're here, we're doing life together, and as always, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's interesting, Dr. Linda, we're doing the show again this weekend, but you're not in the same room with me, uh, not yet anyway. We're still social distancing, we're still in a state that says we have to continue to do this for a while, so we will. We're making the, uh, the technology work in our favor here, so it's actually been a little bit fun to make all of this stuff happen. O- only you would say that, Chris, you have fun, <laughs> fun with technology, that's your new show. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> We have a third person with us today. He's a physician, and he's going to help us make sense of how we are going to, uh, as states in this country, transition back into a normal life. Before we talk about that, we do want to acknowledge the uh, national pain that we are experiencing with the unjustified death of George Floyd last week in Minneapolis, and of course, the protests and the violence that have erupted in many states. This is a difficult time, and we encourage the church to pray, to show Christian love, and to embrace each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's well said, and I I think it's also a good thing to remember that we're all created in God's image, and that every person has equal value and equal worth. And as we move forward, we have to become aware of institutional racism, And we need to peacefully protest incidents of inhumanity, and we have to definitely work on solutions. The church really has to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Unfortunately, I think, Chris, a lot of churches have been a little bit apathetic with this issue of racism. So hopefully this will awaken the church to do its part, because you and I know that it's going to take transformed hearts to make a big difference in our culture. So now is the time for open conversations about the events of this past week. It's time for groups to get together and start working, to work on reform. And most of all, let's really pray for hearts to be transformed. George Floyd cannot just be another name on a growing list of African Americans who are targets of police brutality and injustice. Real change must occur, and we we hope to deal with these issues at a future time when we've had a little bit more time to process what's happened and we can bring some real solutions to the table. You know, Dr. Linda, yesterday I had a conversation with with another co-worker, and uh, he's black. I said, what do we do, Joe? We talked about some things and just had a, had a conversation, and he's not a believer, but I said to him, I said, you know, Joe, this is something that you know, I really want to pray about. And he said, he said, I really would like for you to do that. There is some healing, I think, some some connections that can be made through this process. I hope a lot of us are having conversations with our African-American brothers and sisters. Again, we're all one in the Lord, and we need to be listening and understanding uh, different perspectives and listen to what people have to say. Steps of change can I make? That's right. Uh, Today we're talking about reopening America and uh, what we need to know with our special guest, Dr. Richard Lane, who you will meet in just a second. And Dr. Linda, most of the country is reopening to some degree, and we thought it would be good to talk to an expert about what we need to do, what we need to know and keep in mind as we reopen our states and re-engage with others once again. I'm so glad that we're doing this show, and I'm so glad that you and I both thought of Dr. Lane, because I have been following his blogs on Facebook all through the uh, time that we've been dealing with uh, COVID-19. And to me, there's just so much confusion still on what to do and what not to do. Even doctors disagree on strategies, and it's hard to sort it all out at times. 
And since we have both a friend who's a physician who's experienced with infectious disease, we thought it would be great to bring him on the show and just sort of help us navigate this new normal. So with that said, Chris, let's bring on our guest, Dr. Richard Lane. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He has recently retired to a beautiful place on the coast of North Carolina. He has a Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of Maryland School of Medicine and a Master of Public Health and Tropical Medicine degree from Tulane University School of Public Health. He is licensed as a physician in the Commonwealth of Virginia. He served for many years as a professor in public health and served six years in the Air Force Flight Service. So we also want to thank Dr. Lane for his military service to our country as well. He has traveled over 50 nations over the past 30 years, providing educational and clinical services to many in underserved areas of the world. He has published and married to his wife, Cindy, for 42 years. He's been blogging during the pandemic. He's been a voice of reason. So we want to welcome Dr. Lane. Well, thanks for having me. When I look back, I would have never thought this would have happened. It almost feels surreal at times. So what do you notice now living in a small coastal town? Well, it was kind of hard for the two weeks that we weren't allowed to walk on the beach, but now we're back out. Everybody's flocking here because they can't go to work, and so they're coming here to hang out. So it has created some changes and opportunities for us as well. But it is a different life, and it will stay different for quite a while. So you mentioned that a lot of people are flocking to the beaches, and we get concerned when we see that in terms of the distancing that we're being asked to do. Are you also concerned with all the gatherings that you're seeing with the protests that are coming up? I am. We were seeing ourselves on this downtrend. Uh, Then we had the protests from people wanting to return to work and get out and do things. That unfortunately did cause a spike in some areas. And in North Carolina in particular, we got our highest level of new cases in a day about a week or so after that first protest. So it is a little bit concerning. Even in my town, uh, the last five days, we've had the greatest increase in numbers of cases, but a quarter of those have been in the last couple of days. And so it's worrisome. So I, I noticed in your one of your recent blogs that you said the virus is not like the seasonal flu and we need to remain vigilant. Can you explain that? Because a lot of people are saying to me, we're just overreacting to all of this. It's just like any other flu. Flu season is almost over and we need to stop being so hyper about everything. Yeah, this is a new virus. We've got other coronaviruses, but not like this one. And it hits certain segments of our population really hard. And it's not just like the flu. The virus that causes COVID-19, COVID-19, SARS-2, uh, has a lot in common, but the differences add this larger element of risk. One of those things is that we've got a bunch of asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people that can shed the virus which means I can have somebody that doesn't know they're sick, won't become sick maybe, and can pass it on to me. And I'm retired. That puts me in one of those higher risk categories. I am more likely to become sick or a college student who maybe came from the university and wanted to see me in my retirement at the beach, pops down here and says, hi, and they're asymptomatic. They don't know they've got it. I now get sick or they give it to somebody who's even older and now I become very sick. They become very sick. Uh, we had a case in Charlotte, North Carolina, just down the road from me back in April. And this lady had immune disorder that she was staying home. She didn't want to be compromised. 
And so she had all of her groceries delivered. She had not been out of her house for a month. Somebody dropped off her groceries in the porch. She went and picked them up off the porch. About a day, two days later, the deliverer developed symptoms of COVID-19. In fact, eventually died. And then that woman picked up symptoms of COVID-19 a week later. And in her words, she says, it is not the flu. This is the worst thing I have ever had in my entire life. It is an issue. Symptoms of flu generally last a week or so. A lot of people, especially the elderly, who get symptoms end up hospitalized. Now, most of the discharges will happen. With influenza, very few people die. With COVID, people tend to be sick for four weeks, six weeks. I've even heard of eight weeks. And so it's much longer. Typically with COVID, people become very ill at day six or they get better. If they become sick at six, they develop shortness of breath, this heavy chest discomfort and limb pain that's uh, more akin to dengue fever type symptoms. And some people end up, like I say, with clotting issues and some people end up in the hospital. In fact, about 15% of people who are symptomatic go into the hospital. If they end up in an ICU and eventually on a ventilator because they need it, uh, hopefully they won't need it because 50% of those people actually die. That doesn't happen with the flu. Uh, yeah, people die of it. People get sick. People end up on a ventilator. But most people get better without really any worry. Uh, and it's not just the unhealthy people, because that's so one of these rumors. Oh, these people going to die in two or three years anyway. Like, give me my two or three years. Um, there was a woman, 51-year-old, very healthy woman. She was a director of National Partnerships for Red Cross. She developed COVID-19 back in March, struggled for three weeks before ending up in the hospital. At that point, said it was the worst feeling she'd ever had in her life, deteriorated further, went on the ventilator, and died after two full months of illness. Uh, seasonal flu mortality rate, 0.1%. For a symptomatic person, it's on the order of 2%, but it's not equal. And this is one of the odd things with this. It disproportionately affects minorities, people who are underprivileged. And I'm really concerned as I look at protesters right now, because these are people that are now in a situation where they're more to pick it up with close contacts. That's great information so far. And we're going to pick it up right after a very short break. And we're going to have more with Dr. Lane. Things that you need to know about COVID as we're re-entering the culture again and opening up the states. Stay with us more in just a minute. There's no doubt about it, we are definitely living in the text, Twitter, and email age. The handwritten note has become quite the relic. But just because we don't write much with pen and paper anymore doesn't mean we should forsake the kind and encouraging message. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Mintel, the Relationship Doctor, and I want to encourage you to share a kind word. Even if it's a text, the power of telling a friend you're thinking of them, complimenting a success, or just saying, hey, hang in there, can make all the difference. If you've ever had your day interrupted by just a quick but genuine message from someone close, you know how a thought can raise your spirits, rejuvenate your mind, or help you stick on a difficult path because someone just cares. While you're listening right now, someone may come to mind, someone you can encourage with a few words. Take a minute and text, tweet, or email that person. Tell them you value them and the part they play in your life. It just might change their whole day. 
Welcome back to the Dr. Linda Mental Show. And today's topic is reopening America and what we need to know. And we will have more conversation with our special guest, Dr. Richard Lane, in just a moment. But before we continue our conversation, just want to take a quick second to remind you to check out Dr. Linda's website, drlindamental.com. And Dr. Linda, let's go back to our conversation with our special guest and physician and public health expert, Dr. Richard Lane. So, Dr. Lane, one of the biggest questions people are asking about is masks. Do we need to wear them indoors, outdoors? Do we really need to wear them when we're around people that we've known, like our family, when we're driving? We see people driving in the car by themselves wearing a mask. I'm not sure I understand that one. Well, well, the answer is masks do help. Uh, They're not the end all. They're not perfect. There was just a study published about two days ago that showed a significant decrease in the spread of disease using just a surgical mask or the cloth mask. It is not going to eliminate all disease, though. You're going to need them mainly in like close confines, like in the aisles of the grocery store. Outside, I don't worry about it as much, and certainly not in your car. Okay, good. So those people riding their bikes in the park could maybe take their masks off in 90-degree yeah, weather. Outside, definitely, <laughs> yeah. We walk on the beach all the time. Uh, I do put a buff around my neck, and if some kid runs up toward me, I quickly pull it over my face and then walk past as quickly as I can. I don't wear it when I'm walking down the streets. Explain this. Every time I hear a newscast, I get so frustrated because they say, testing, testing, testing. We all need more testing. But as an average American citizen, I don't even know what that means. Like, does that mean I should go somewhere and find a test? Or tell us how that testing works. If I tested you today and you were negative, it doesn't mean a thing to me. Because you could have been exposed yesterday and not start shedding virus until three, four, five, even 14 days down the road. And so I have to assume that I have been exposed from my last trip to the grocery store and could spread the virus. And that's where the mask actually comes in because it's my respiratory droplets that put others at risk. If I get symptoms, I should be tested. If somebody is exposed to me knowingly, like my wife, and she's asymptomatic, it is probably reasonable for her to at some point get tested and certainly to isolate until she can be tested or get through that 14-day quarantine period. So, Dr. Lane, we've heard a lot about hydroxychloroquine, and we even had a press conference where the president was telling the public that he's taking it. I've seen scientific journals that say it has no impact, don't take it. I've heard a lot of people tell us that they took it and helped What's your stance on that? Well, this, the jury is still out on it. I know the World Health Organization has canceled the hydroxychloroquine arm of one of its studies, but that was a hospital-based study for critical patients. There's a study that's still out on prophylaxis, and we haven't even looked at outpatients. I don't think people should rush to take it unless they are part of one of these studies for the outpatients, and we just sort of leave it at that. Is yeah. it dangerous for somebody to take it? Are there side well, effects that are dangerous? Well, it, has, it does have nasty side effects. It certainly tears up your stomach and makes you lose your appetite, and COVID already does that. If you have heart issues, it can actually put you into a deadly arrhythmia. But there are people that take it all the time for malaria. They take it all the time for uh, rheumatoid conditions like lupus, no issues. So it can be used safely. You just have to choose the right people. And you want to make sure that it actually works before you take any drug. We've heard a lot about this idea that we need to build herd immunity. Could you explain what herd immunity is and how that relates to uh, the current COVID 
pandemic? A, a virus needs people to be able to propagate itself. It turns out that if you have 70 to 80 percent of the population immune to a disease like COVID or flu or any of the other viruses that are out there, then that disease won't be able to actually propagate itself through the population anymore and it just fizzles out. We're nowhere near that for COVID-19 now. So how does that develop? I mean, is we hear, you know, again, the public isn't the scientist that you are. So a lot of times yeah. when we hear things, we hear things like you got to have the antigens or antibodies. And can you make sense of that in terms of how that works and lay sort of a lay sure. explanation of that and how immunity is built? Basically, you can only get specific immunity to a disease one of two ways. You either have the disease or you receive antibodies to the disease from some other source. It could be passively, say, from your mother, and that happens somewhat. won't happen for a while for this disease. Or you can do a vaccine to give you the ability to make antibodies as another source. What we're hoping is to have a vaccine, give it to enough people that we hit the 70% when we don't have to worry about disease anymore. What we don't want is for everybody to get the disease at the same time because it would overrun the hospitals. And we saw what happened in Italy and Spain and other countries. We saw what happened in New York City. They were overrun. That was only about 2 to 3% of the population that was sick. And with that, only 5% of the population has any antibodies, even if you count in the asymptomatic. That's kind of where we are right now. We've got a long way to go. How about as we're, as we're again, we're reopening, I noticed I walked down my city streets today and there were a number of tables outside, people sitting at restaurants. I couldn't think that all of them were six feet apart. What do you say about the safety of going into a restaurant, even now that there, a lot of them are opening up at 50% capacity? Is this a good idea? That certainly helps, um, but you need to make sure you have that six feet distance from the next person. Uh, the biggest risk, of course, is going to be the waiter and trusting that waiter to wash their hands carefully, making sure those plates are hot. I probably would avoid salads, uh, not that COVID's foodborne, but hands spreading it to cold items and potentially living there and I could infect myself that way. A lot of unknowns with this virus. What about the idea? So, you know, we've all been distancing. We haven't seen our friends. We haven't seen our families in person. We've had the fortunate, obviously, the help of, you know, the social platforms and being able to see people on FaceTime, that kind of thing. But what about people who want to invite people over to their house finally this summer? Or I think it's even more tricky. What about the people who want to come to see you? And you're not sure what to say to those people. You know, Cindy and I have turned away many people who would love to come to our beach house and hang out for a day because we just don't feel safe because they may stop at the gas station and come in and see us. I think somebody who is more local and I knew that they were social distancing, I would feel more comfortable sitting with. Uh, and what I would do is outside is going to be safer than inside because we have more space, more air flowing. And making sure that we maintain that distance of six feet between us as we sit and enjoy conversation and even eat our meals together. It's possible to do that. Staying inside my house, uh, I'd have to really like that person a whole lot to invite them to come and stay unless I knew they were quarantined for two weeks before they showed up. I'm actually going to have to make that decision to visit my mother-in-law. Uh, she's up in Pittsburgh. It's a 12-hour drive, and she needs us to visit. She lives by herself. She has some needs. We're going to make that trip. We will quarantine for two weeks. 
I will hand sanitize myself to death until I get up there. And then we will wear masks and we won't hug her when we arrive. Yeah, I certainly understand, especially with the elderly. I think it's going to be, we're going to see some issues with people and friendships. I think this could cause some conflict in friendships, maybe even marriages of people disagreeing on what to do. And it may raise some conflict. It's a good thing I wrote a book called We Need to Talk. It's a book on conflict. So maybe that book will be helpful to people again. What about churches? Uh, we're, we're hearing yeah. a lot about churches opening, and, and you're a Christian, you go to church, and you mentioned in one of your blogs that a California church held a Mother's Day service, and an attendee tested positive for COVID-19 the next day. So by yeah. attending the service, I think the estimate was 180 other people were exposed. How, how do we manage right. going back to church? The same rules apply, and there are actually good guidelines on the CDC website for churches. I've consulted with a number of churches uh, trying to figure out how to get back. Generally, you want to make sure that family units stay separated six feet from the next family unit, which means basically use either end of the pew and you kind of put a pew in between you, and that way you get the six feet. In our church, we're actually going to wear masks uh, because when we get up and move around, we might get a little bit closer than six feet. And plus, when we're singing, singing projects more volume and therefore more risk of droplets. And so particularly during singing, we're going to make sure we have our mask on so that we're not going to have any risk. We're also making sure that people that are more at risk of disease, like those who have chronic medical conditions and the older folks, consider just staying home and we'll have online stuff for them for the duration. Dr. Lane and Dr. Linda, I'd like to uh, ask, sort of take a sidetrack here for a second. Dr. Lane, you and I are friends on Facebook and you mentioned something about gas stations uh, several weeks ago, and I jokingly yep. said, hey, I put gas on my hands and it, to, to prevent the virus. And, and you came back with a very serious answer and said, don't do that. And my, my point is, there are some really goofy things going on right now. And have you seen lots of folks who think that they have the right idea, but there are just some really bizarre prevention there, methods? Every day. From drinking bleach, please don't do that. I don't care how diluted it is, to the gasoline. And I've actually heard other people say that as well. Basically, just general hygiene stuff is important. Keep your distance. You know, don't go to buffets where everybody's sticking their hands into the salad. You know, wash your hands when you use the gas station or use the hand sanitizer so you're not picking it up and keep your fingers off your face. I dare say that 90% of all of our infections actually come from we shake hands with somebody, then we touch our nose or we scratch our eyes, or we pick our teeth, and we infect ourselves. What about vaccines? I have taken every flu vaccine since 1976. Okay. That was my first question. First of all, do yeah. you recommend regular flu vaccine for this upcoming regular flu season? And then how about if there is one for COVID? Because a lot of people are afraid to take it. So give yeah. us your thoughts on that as well. I've been really surprised. You know, Chris talks about Dumb things that people say. People are saying the vaccine's dangerous. We haven't even tested it or developed it yet. And they're telling about how dangerous it is. That's wrong. Let's test it. And we've gone through this phase one testing, and it looks like it's safe at the lower dosage. And we find the highest dose that we can give that's safe. So they're going to go with the middle dosing regimen that they thought of. And that looks safe. We'll now go to phase two trials, larger, and we'll see if it's really safe on a larger population, maybe some pop-up that we didn't see on the small. If it gets to that, we've got a safe vaccine that we can use reasonably well, and then we'll open it up to these huge trials with thousands of people. 
And those take time. If it's safe then, and it shows that it's reasonably effective, then I'm going to take it. And I'm hoping that those of us who are older, it's still going to be safe because that's going to be an issue. Is it something that younger people can take, older people can't? That is actually a possibility. And so my concern with this, and I know where you're going with the question, is that people who don't take it are going to be those younger people who want their experiences to dictate. And if they don't get it, then the older people who can't take it are still at risk. So I really want to see as many people as possible to take this vaccine. Like you said, it's going to take time. And I think that's one of the questions people are asking, how much time? How long are we going to have to wait? Are we going to be doing this for another six, seven, eight months? And then hopefully by next year? Is that a reasonable time frame, do you think? Yeah, well, we'll actually finish some of these phase two trials this summer. And they have already started producing the vaccines for the phase three trials in anticipation that they're going to work. It's a huge expense. And if phase two doesn't work, we just throw it all away. And it's worth the money because of the cost of life that's happening with this. So there's so many more things I could ask you. We're almost out of time. We've just got a few minutes left. I'd like you to just give us any of your last thoughts. And then if you wouldn't mind praying over our listeners and um, maybe even specifically the city of Minneapolis. And then I'll close us. I've been looking at some of the data from Minneapolis, um, and they have been on a downward trend uh, until this past week when we saw the number of cases going up again. So it's still incomplete data, and now we've got people circulating around in crowded situations. I noticed some people have masks on, some people just can see others aren't. In two weeks, we will know whether we're going to have a huge spike and we have to lock things down again. And that's a distinct possibility. Uh, we mm. saw this after the pandemic of 1918. Things like celebrations after the soldiers returned from war caused a surge in cases. Churches caused a surge in cases. So I definitely want to lift up those people because you need to protest. You need to be able to demonstrate it's, it's a right uh, but you need to do it safely. And doing it in daytime is easier to stay distant. Doing it at nighttime, not so easy. And particularly when we get other forces involved in it. And Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity. I do wish that we had hours and hours to spend because there's so much information. But I would pray for sound minds. I would pray for people to approach this as though this is a very real disease that can cause death and harm and distress to people. Uh, and Father, we would pray that uh, people just think about what they're doing, keep that distance, use the mask appropriately, and God, that you would provide the safety that we need to get through this, and that the scientists would come up with the right answers with time, that we can bring this to an end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And remember, our hope is always in the Lord, and we have a God who's greater and can do anything. So we always have hope. We shouldn't fear. We don't want to walk in fear, but we want to be sensible. So that's all the time that we have for today. Many thanks to our special guest, Dr. Lane, for sharing his expertise on our show today, to our producer and social media director, Norm Mintel, our engineer, and my co-host, Chris Weigel, who makes the show a conversation. From all of us here at Faith Radio, we'll talk to you next weekend. In the meantime, remember, we are doing life together, and it's better when you don't have to do it alone but wear your mask.